podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Willie Boland. Um, you've got to check out Ace Podcast Nation. Um, some very interesting topics on there and all your podcast needs. Shut up and sit down. Welcome to Ace Podcast Nation. Here on the channel, we've got podcasts, interviews, content on a variety of subjects. We've got ongoing series on mental health, mental health and sport, conspiracy theories, a new series on serial killers, as well as uh, monthly films and TV show. We've also uh, new guests each week discussing all sorts, wrestling, football, music, writing and more. You can uh, keep up to date with new guests and what's coming up on our Twitter page, which is at AceCast Nation. And you can also find us on Facebook.com uh, slash AceCast Nation, where you can find all our social media uh, posts, as well as exclusive quickfire question content. So today's show is on football and uh, mental health. And I'm uh, thrilled to have another ex-footballer join me. Uh, he's the first footballer to come on the show who's got no links whatsoever to Cardiff City, uh, but he is another former Republic of Ireland international, once dubbed the Ryan Giggs of the North East. Uh, I'm delighted to welcome ex-Middlesbrough, Barnsley, Burnley player Alan Moore. Welcome, Alan. Thank you for coming on. No problem. You okay? Yeah, all good. So let's uh, let's start with the 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 Ryan Giggs of the North East. What was that like to have that comparison at such a you know a young age? Um, it's not something I could control, to be honest. So it's something I just took, took a pinch of salt. It was, I think, it was quite easy for a journalist at the time just to just to chuck it out there, and it, it seemed to stick for some reason. So we were around at the same time, starting off at the same time, I suppose, and it, it it's just stuck ever since, you know. So it's it's not like a deal or control or whatever. I never took too much notice of it, to be honest. No, I mean, there's worse players to be can, compared to, I guess. The uh, So, let's start, talk your career and uh, go back to the start. So, how did you uh, come into the game? How did you get, you were obviously born in Dublin um, and then ended up as a youngster playing for Middlesbrough. How did that come about? Um, I was, I played for a quite successful team when I was in Dublin. Um, I know you had Graham Covenant, so... At Cardiff and that he was a year older, he played for home farm. We were a year younger and we were sort of the All Ireland champions, the best team in the league. So we got quite a lot of scouts coming over. So from a young age, I was coming across to to England on trials to all different clubs and getting to feel around the clubs, you know, seeing if, if you if you felt welcome or whatever and you felt comfortable in that environment. Um, and near the end, so when I was 15, Middlesbrough came in late on and invited me over. I went... I had a look around the digs, had a chat with sort of the chief scout, Ron Bourne, at the time. And it just felt really sort of relaxed, really welcoming, and, and somewhere where I thought I had a better chance than maybe signing for Liverpool or Man U at the time, which I had options. Um, a better chance of getting into first-team football. I was quite sort of screwed on, I think, from a young age with my head. And I had a, sort of a plan in my head to get into first-team football early, and that was my sort of pathway that I looked at. You know, so I felt it was more achievable or a championship team than, than going to your sort of Man U as a Liverpool to Minstoke as another number. Yeah, was it um, was it difficult to like to move over from Dublin? Did you have like family come over with you or? No, you I, I came on my own to be honest, um, and I was. It was difficult. It was difficult. I had homesickness for a long time when I was in England. Always, every time I got a chance, I went back to Ireland. Um, and it didn't help that when I went into the digs, there I was with a lad from Northern Ireland who left after two weeks because he was missing his girlfriend. You know, so he packed in football altogether at 16 because he was missing his girlfriend after two weeks. So, I mean, does he regret that decision? I'm not so sure. So it, it was difficult coming across, but I was lucky enough, and I'll mention again, Graham Kavanagh had just signed six months before and Curtis Fleming, another Irish lad from Dublin, had just come at the same time as me. So... The three of us together sort of got one another through and looked after one another and became good good friends for life from it. Yeah, and I think that 
tends to be um, what helps in that sort of situation, isn't it? Is the is the people around you um, and the other players. Uh, and I had I had um, Cav on a couple of weeks ago, and uh, like he was talking about the similar sort of thing, in that it is quite difficult. And I think sometimes with young players, we often forget that some of them are coming from you know other countries. Some of them don't speak that great English, and they're like eighteen, nineteen, and then they just because of the transfer fees involved, sometimes they're almost expected to just you know turn up on a Monday, train for a week, and then play the, the next game at the top You know, at the top of their game, when there's quite a lot of different aspects which can affect you know how they play as, apart from training and form and you know quality, and I think it's often uh something which is lost or, or people tend to forget should i say that you know a lot of these players are young and they're in new countries new cities it's uh it's difficult i think and i think from from like the people i've spoken to and the people who i know i think the clubs are pretty good at helping boys settle you know particularly sort of young men Guys, not necessarily who've come through the academy, but guys who've signed at sort of nineteen, twenty, they do seem to be quite good at helping them settle. And if they don't speak English, they'll give them sort of someone who can help them translate and stuff. Yeah. Was that like was the club pretty supportive to the young players yeah. coming over from Ireland and stuff? I had on hand. I had the the chief scout at the time, Ron Bone, who nearly took over as a father figure. You know, he, he made sure every day he came and checked on me and let me use his phone in the office at the time where, I mean, it was still, there was no sort of mobile phones in those days, 20 odd years ago. You know, so he was sat in his office, he could use the phone. And it, it was it was stuff that, that sort of he did, because I went on then to become academy manager for five years, a sort of bury in Carlisle. And we would get lads sort of from Manchester to Leeds who got homesick, who struggled with it. You know, you, you forget these lads are 16. They've just left school, they're into the big bad world now of earning a living, living by themselves in digs. And I think my experience of being in the digs helped me a lot then to sort of understand and deal with these lads. You know, and if they were feeling down, just give them a few days to go home. Just recharge the batteries and then come back and play football. Because that's all they want to do is play football. And they, they don't really understand all these other emotions that are going on. Where they were being away from home, missing the mother's food and stuff like that. And, and the issues, you know, so I made it sort of a conscious effort to look after the lads and, and make sure that they all felt that they were comfortable in the environment first and then they could go and play the better football, you know, because if they're not happy and they're not enjoying it and they've got other stuff going on with girlfriends and, and digs and family and missing family and stuff like that, you're never going to get the best out of them, you're never going to see the best of the kids and all you want to do is see these little young lads come in and smile every day, apart from when you're running them, of course, but... You, you, you want to see them smile, you want to see them enjoying the football and they will play the better football if they're happy, you know. So I, from my experiences, it stood me in good stead being an academy manager to look after the young lads and, and sort of make sure that they're human beings, you know. Everybody looks at them and sees what they do on a Saturday afternoon, but there's an awful lot that goes in, as you say, you know, on the, on the Monday to Friday. They're still human beings, they're finding a way in the world. And even if they were in any other job, they'd still have the same issues getting up when it's dark and going home when it's dark, you know, so it's it's not easy for, for kids growing up nowadays. Everybody thinks they're footballers and it's an easy life and all the rest of it, but it comes with its challenges. Yeah, I um, I spoke with, uh, last night I did a show on, uh, again, mental health in sport, and um, I spoke with a guy, a mental health support worker called Jacob, who's doing some work up sort of Bristol way with sort of young players and retired players and try to help them with sort of managing different aspects of their sort of mental health. And there's so many different aspects which can affect, you know, players of all ages in terms of, you know, injuries, personal life, the pressure. There's so much different stuff. And it's things like if, um, if you're in an office job and say your father dies, you could take as much time as you need. Sometimes you know, people have months off. Whereas whenever you hear of a footballer, a father or a relative dying, it tends to be they've been given a week off and they're back in training, you know, within a few days. 
and I know it's different to an office, but like I think sometimes again, whether it's the media or the clubs or what I'm not sure what the sort of the the reason for it is, but sometimes it gets forgotten that these guys are human beings and they've you know they've got the problems of human beings just like the rest of us, but they're doing it in the limelight of the public and they get criticized. You know, I if you work in an office, you don't have someone your manager is not telling you you were dreadful on Saturday, so you're not playing, you're you're not going I don't want you to come to work next week. But that's what these you know, these players these and particularly, you know, it's young players, isn't it? It's diff, it's very yeah. difficult. Yeah, as I said, it's, it's emotions that they're not used to because if I, if I go back to sort of dealing with the young players as academy manager, it's they're used to success. All these lads that get into academy, say a Cardiff, who are cap one, cap two academy, they've they've been the best players at school. They've been the best players in the town team, best players in the county team. That's why they're at Cardiff. Now all of a sudden they're in an environment where there's better players than them. So they've got to deal with disappointments, which they haven't had before because life has been fairly easy for them up until that point. And there's only going to be two or three that will go on them to be to become pros of all that group of 25, 30 players. You know, so the disappointments are, are only around the corner in football. For everybody sees all the success and all the money, there's always disappointments around the corner, especially for the young lads who have just been used to success, used to the, then the pressures from the families and, and the friends and all the rest of them because they think, well, he's signed for this big club. He's, he, he's going to be this, he's going to be that, you know. So it's, it's very difficult for the lads. And I said it's emotions that they don't understand. And it was one of the biggest things that I sort of tried to bring in and I was very lucky to have an experienced coach with me for the five years when I was doing academy manager. Was we we treated them as human beings. We looked out for every little sign that we we could find. They'll all do well-being sort of questionnaires in the morning for for health and and to see how many hours they've slept and what food they've been eating and stuff like that. And ask about do they feel depressed? But the, the kids wouldn't won't even know what depression is. You know, some of them because some of them are just disappointed because they haven't played well on a Saturday. You know, and, and they might mass that as being depression but it's it's just it's another emotion that they haven't been used to because they're successful all the way through the, the young lives so it's we made a point of getting to know all the players getting to know the traits getting to know sort of um, any little sort of signs that they weren't happy with what they were doing and pulling them aside and having a chat and having that environment where they felt safe and comfortable to actually come and speak to you if things weren't gone right, and I, th- I think that's massively important with the young lads, with the mental health and stuff that goes on, you know, because I had all sorts of thrown at me as, as a academy manager, as you can imagine, from sort of behind the scenes, stuff that you've got to deal with, and again, they're human beings, so that's all we're dealing with day in, day out, and at the end of it, they're not all going to be footballers, but this, you still want to respect them as human beings, as, as I would imagine in any other job. You would want to respect anybody that's the, sat in an office with, sat in stacking shelves with, you know, you, you just want to have that respect, mutual respect. And if you get that, then I think you'll get the best out of them as, as footballers. Oh, definitely. And I think being a teenager, I th- I, I always say it's the, it's the hardest point in your life. It's really, it's not easy because your emotions and your hormones are all over the place. And I think footballers, particularly academy footballers once they hit 16 they have to grow up very very quickly um and probably you know more so than someone who goes to university or goes to an apprenticeship and goes straight into work i just feel like with footballers they are very high standard is expected of them the second they sign that sort of pro contract which you know of course it should be but like you say things like what you were talking about there about the questionnaires and trying to treat them as human beings and with respect is obviously the right way to go. Do you feel, I mean, obviously being a player and then being in co- involved in the academy stuff now, do you think that, um, can you see a change in the way coaches treat players, the way coaches treat young players and academy coaches to perhaps what it was like, you know, in the early 90s? Um there is a slight change. Um, I, I had massive issues with sort of force team managers when I was academy manager with how they would treat the kids. They seen them as just somebody there who was to put out the goal 
goals, clean the footballs and, and get the bibs for them and stuff like that, you know, and, and they didn't treat them properly in my opinion. So I would fall out and I would defend the kids the whole time um, because the game has moved on, you know, we, we have to find different ways to, to get to these kids, to, to get them playing the maximum football. I, I had a coach who stuck out with me when I was at Middlesbrough, he was the first team coach and he was the, the first one that actually knew what I was thinking could speak to me and actually he knew the answers before I, I spoke and that stood out with me sort of all through my life that if you can get somebody like that you're only going to play for them you're only going to do what you can for them because they understand what you're thinking and so that's what we try to do with all the lads but unfortunately there's, there's still the old school element that's out there that doesn't really respect the kids the way they should be respected and treat them so the way they should be treated you know and that's why you see so many cases of bullying now in, in football and, and people you, you've the world has changed you can't bollock the kids anymore you can't bollock force team footballers it's just not the way it's done so you've got to find different ways to motivate them you've got to find different ways to get them to to play to your system because essentially as sort of 16 to 18 all we're trying to do is brainwash them into thinking like footballers eating like footballers sleeping like footballers you know so it's you're as a footballer, when you come out of it, you realise that everywhere you've been, everywhere, everything that you've eaten, you've been told to do at a certain time. So you're, it's like being in prison, basically. You, you, everything's done for you. You know, you just have to be there on time. So when you come out, and I think that's when a lot of footballers struggle when they come out, that they don't have that sort of regimental, you've got to be up at nine o'clock, you've got to be in to the training ground at 10, on the pitch for quarter past 10 and stuff like that. So a lot of them miss that sort of structure. Whereas... As I said, what we're doing with the young lads, we're trying to put that structure into them, so brainwash them in a, a certain way. And you're, as I said, you're only after the one or two that are going to come through and, and actually be footballers over. But along the way, I still, I'll go back to it. You still have to treat them as, as human beings. And, and lucky enough that I've got a lot of friends still from all the lads that I've had over the years that I'm still friends with, you know, and respect and and because we treated them properly, in, in my opinion, you know, so. I said we would defend them against these old school sort of values that you've got with certain managers out there, you know, who who didn't treat them properly and just seeing them as sort of cleaning ladies and, and you know, make sure the changing rooms are clean for them and the boots are clean and stuff like that. It's gone away from that. Football's gone away from that. So we, we need to move with the times, I believe. Yeah, and it, ha it has changed. So I've asked all the different football people I've been on with, um, obviously, when I was like 15, 16, is if you were in an academy, you were cleaning the boots of the first team players and doing jobs around the ground and stuff. That's sort of moved away from that now. Um, do you believe that they should have got away with it altogether or do you think they should have found sort of a happy medium between the two or do you think they should have just carried on doing it that way? Um, no, I, I believe that they should just concentrate on playing football and look after themselves. You know, it's, you hear the old school values that, well, it taught me discipline and it taught me how to behave and, and all the rest of it around pros and stuff like that, and you learn from them. Well, for me, there was an awful lot of bad pros, so you only want to learn from the good pros, you know, so there has to be different ways to teach them. You know, we have to be able to get them to where we need to be. And, and teach them the values of, of being on time, of eating the right things and, and being disciplined without having to clean boots or without having to... I mean, it's the sad part about it is the kids actually get judged on how clean the floors are at times in clubs. You know, and you, the footballers, they're not here to clean floors. They're not qualified to clean floors. If you want to clean floors, go and get a clean lady. Go and get a company in to do it, you know. So that was always my argument for it. We're here to judge them on being footballers, and we're spending all this time hanging around the club for four or five hours before training and after training, doing meaningless jobs, which they're not going to be sort of marked on or graded on on a Saturday when it comes to match day. If that's four or five hours, we could be on the training pitch, you know, doing extra technical work, extra physical work. We could be in the gym, we could be watching videos, you know. So that was always my angle. I believe that they shouldn't have to do anything. Um, and I've come through what I had to do sort of all the jobs as a kid and does a teacher discipline and all the rest of that I'm not so sure I think we've moved on there's different ways now we have to speak to the kids the world's moved on so they don't respect being told what to do you have to get a buy-in from them 
They have to accept, they have to understand why they're being asked to do certain things. So you can't explain to them why you're being asked to clean the floor. You know, for me, it makes no sense at all to become a footballer. Yeah, yeah, I can, I, I can see that that way of thinking. I think it's, it's a bit of a, it's a I don't know. I'm so, I think I'm somewhere in between. In that, when I spoke to um, Andy Campbell, he was saying that he was glad that he'd done that because it, it enabled him to, when he was at Middlesbrough, interact with players like uh, Juninho and people like this when he was, you know, sixteen, and it was he was able to sort of speak to them and they were quite. Uh, you know, quite welcoming to him. But I suppose uh, other clubs, if the pros are like similar to what you were saying about the the managers and the coaches, just saw them as almost like these sort of slaves who just do their jobs for them. You're not going to learn anything from that other than probably build up a little bit of resentment because they keep bossing you about and telling you to do the jobs that they don't want to do. So it's, I suppose it's, I can see both sides of it. But like you say, is that does it really teach them sort of discipline and things like that? You know, could they learn discipline and other things like similar from conversations and, uh, you know, getting through to them in other ways? Probably. So I think, I could, like I say, I could see both sides to that, but I can fully understand, like, your way of thinking. That I used to, I used to have real fun with sort of with managers, with one in particular. I won't name um, and I used to try and get him to justify why he wouldn't let the lads go at five o'clock. He, had, he wanted them to hang around till five o'clock every day. And part of the reason where he came out now, he wouldn't let the, the young lads eat with the pros. You have to eat separately. And we're only at a small club, by the way, that there's not a lot, an awful lot. They're in the same room, but they weren't allowed to eat. They weren't allowed to use the same doors as the pros. They had to come in the back door and stuff like that, so they weren't seen around them. Um, but they had to do all the jobs and had to hang around it. So they were good for some stuff, but not good enough for others. It, and and his reason was that most of them won't become footballers. So I'm teaching them to to hang around and to be like a nine to five job. So doing the hours of a nine to five job. I said, well, we're wasting two years of them then trying to be footballers. They're here to actually try and be footballers. You have rolled them off now before they've even kicked the ball because you're teaching them. How to, to work in a nine to five job in a factory or something like that, you know, and it was it was just sort of the old school way of, of thinking, which wasn't wasn't sort of didn't go down well with me, and I would defend the kids the, the whole way through against people like that. Yeah, yeah. So Borough had quite the uh, quite the team in the nineties. I mean, you had some top pros to to learn from as you pushed for that sort of the first team place as a youngster. When you were that age, did you sort of feel things like pressure and nerves and stuff like that? Or was it basically just want to get on with the job and get pushing for the first team place? Um, I was sort of one-track mind from a very young age. That football was all I wanted to do, so I didn't really feel... I, I welcomed the challenge, welcomed the challenge of, of wanting to be the best, best player in the new team, wanting to be the best player in the reserve team, and then wanting to go out and be the best player in the post team. I welcomed that challenge and I, I, I never really had sort of nerves or anything like that from, from football. It was just, that was where I was a very quiet sort of person around the place, introvert, so didn't speak a lot. And it was only when I came onto the sort of football pitch I came alive, you know. So that was my sort of way of expressing sort of your personality and stuff like that. So for me, it, it was... It was just a challenge, and I enjoyed the challenge. You know, I wanted to show people how good I was. Yeah, and I think in some ways, young players feel that pressure less because they 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 perhaps don't uh, don't feel the the emotions of things like pressure and stuff like that until they get a bit older. So they are very focused on they just want to be a footballer so much that they want to get into the first team and they want to go on like that. So they don't necessarily feel that sort of the pressure side of it at that age. Um, obviously, you know, things happen and stuff, you know, if things happen in their personal life, if they have bereavement or, you know, they slept with their girlfriend or whatever it may be, that can obviously trigger certain things. But I think just from a football point of view, 
from my own experience and from like the people I've spoken to, like yourself, it seems that those sort of young players of sort of 17, 18, 19, most of them don't feel the sort of pressure or the pressure to perform as such. Like obviously they still feel that, you know, they need to perform and they want to perform to the highest level that they can, but they don't necessarily feel the pressure from, you know, outside and everywhere. Yeah. Um, how old were you when you made your first team debut? Um, I think 17 when I, I came on as a sub. Um, and then I think I was 18 then when I started my, my first game. So in my first year as a first year scholar, I was on the bench for the first team. Um, I think the first time I was on the bench was Manu away. And Giggs actually scored um, in the semi-final of the League Cup. He scored an extra time, you know, so that was a bit of a welcome into the world of, of football. And they were the days when there was only sort of three subs as well at the time, you know, so it was, again, I just, I went to there on the Tuesday and then played for the U team on the Saturday, so it was just playing football. There was no sort of, um, no sort of thinking, oh, well, you've made it now. It was just get back to playing football. That's That's all you wanted to do, you know, so, and I think going back to what we were just saying, you know, when you, with the young lads now, I think there's, there's far too many distractions with agents and boot deals and stuff like that, whereas money, fame and all the rest of it didn't interest sort of when I was growing up, it was just football. And if you did the stuff on the green stuff out on, on the pitch, you would get rewarded. But it, that was certainly was the last thing on my mind was, was going out thinking that I'm going to play because I'll get a new contract or I'm going to play because I'll get a new boot deal and stuff like that. It was just go out and play football and the the rewards will come around. Yeah, I always remember reading um, something which I think Fergie had said to Paul Pogba the first time he was at United when he was like 16. And he basically, when they were negotiating a contract, he had asked for whatever he'd asked for. And Fergie had said, look, if you perform on the pitch, the money and the fame and everything else, that'll come in, that'll come naturally yeah. by being a top-level player at Manchester United or wherever. And I think maybe sometimes that gets lost on players, especially because there's so much money in the game. You know, some of these guys in the Premier League have played like one or two games in the Premier League and they get this huge contract of like, it can be anything from like 15 grand a week to, you know, 100, 150. Yeah. And it's, and so what the, one of the shows I did was with a sports psychologist or a performance psychologist, and um, she was saying that she believes that clubs should, uh, particularly for the very young players who break into the first team uh, quite early and they get a you know quite a hefty contract at sort of sixteen, seventeen. They um, and sorry, my phone just. Uh, she was she was saying that basically she thinks that their clubs should provide help with things like paying bills, paying rent, getting a mortgage, helping them manage their money. So putting some money aside, because, you know, they may get this nice contract for three years, but if they get, you know, if they have a serious injury at 21, then obviously everything changes. And if they spend all their money, as teenagers do, yeah. it could be problematic. And she was, she was quite adamant that she thought that clubs should have to you know, provide that sort of service, I guess you would call it, for the younger players? Well, LFE do it. So from 16 to 18 years of age, you, you can get workshops sort of with Sporting Chance um, with Barclays to come in and, and spend a day with them um, and sort of, if, if you care, share and stuff like that. So I was, I was always big on getting those in, but what I always found was the ones that you wanted to affect, say, whether it was Sporting Chance, because you, you know you'd have a couple of young gamblers in the, the group, they were the ones that generally didn't listen, you know, so they already knew everything and stuff like that, but they were the ones that you would only got these into effect, so I would, I would purposely just sit there and watch them to see their reactions to certain sort of scenarios, and you could tell that they weren't actually that bothered, that they already had the answers, you know? Yeah. Sometimes that's difficult, and I think it just then comes down to the individuals of, of how they manage. So, if, I mean, we've just had a lad at Wigan last year from Chelsea who's on, he was on more money than all our sort of senior players. He's only 18, 
and you can just tell by his personality he's not going to change with money. They've offered him a new mega deal. He's torn it down. He just wants to play football, and you can tell by his personality. You know, so I, th- I think it's individuals and, and how they go about their stuff, and um, you know, the smart ones, the clever ones who've got the one track mind, they, they they stick out a mile. You know what I mean? So it's having all that ability, but then a lot of people then have got, especially when the money comes, they've got the self destruct button. You know, and they think they've made it, you know. So, again, you go back to kids. They're allowed to make mistakes. We all make mistakes, but it's as long as they learn from them, you know. But you, you, for me, you can tell the sort of real ones that this kid will go on and play for England. He's, he's that good. He's that focused on what he is. And he's not bothered about the other stuff that goes on with the football. He just wants to play, you know, so. Yeah, and I think, you know, as if you're going to be a footballer, I think that's the attitude to have. And that, like you say, there's a lot of lot of distractions out for young boy, uh, young lads these days. Um, so you were you you were very highly rated when you came on the scene. How um, how does a young player who's got a big reputation keep his feet on the ground and deal with the intense scrutiny that comes with it? Obviously, from when you came on the scene to now, the, the intense scrutiny has gone up and fair few levels with social media but you know how does how did you go about keeping your feet on the ground um i was i was always very very sort of level-headed relaxed and so i'm just i just as i said i wanted to play football even from a young age in ireland you know i was captain of sort of the best team in, in ireland i was captain of ireland so on the 15 16 17 and stuff like that so you're playing with your schoolmates and they'd be singing songs and stuff, you know, so, and it was stuff that I didn't really sort of buy into, didn't like it, you know, so being sort of the quiet person I was, I was just, in my mind, it was just football. I just wanted to play football, you know, so I, I sort of switched off from all that sort of stuff and didn't really get involved and we didn't have social media, which was lucky enough didn't sort of do a lot of the interviews. You won't find many interviews when I was playing. It was just concentrating on football, and that, that's all it was for me at the time. You know, I did a thing in my mind where I wanted to play, <coughs> wanted to play for Ireland. So until I got to that stage, you know, that was my goal. That was my sort of aim. That was my dream from a kid to play for Ireland. So that was one track mind. So I was going to do everything I could to get there. Yeah, that must have been a, a really proud proud moment for you, making your debut for Ireland. Obviously, you played, you know, for all the different age groups all the way through. Did um, did that help in terms of when you made that step up into the senior Irish squad that, like, some of the players in there would you'd have played with through the age groups in terms of settling in when you went to that first training session? Um, we, we were lucky enough at at Middlesbrough at the time, I think we had six internationals. It's sort of Alan Kane again, uh, Chris Morris, and we had uh, Bernie Slaven was there. So we had quite a few internationals. So that sort of helps going across with people that you knew. But still getting into that environment and sort of being on the training pitch with the likes of Paul McGrath and stuff like that, who you'd sort of had posters up on your, on your walls when you were a kid. You know, that was, that was a bit of a surreal. And that was probably the first time where I actually felt a bit nervous. On the training, you know, because they they were sort of the heroes. So, but it was, as I said, that, that was the pinnacle. That was that was what you were aiming for from a kid. So, it, that soon settles down, and then you just want to get again. You just want to play football. The environment that they created, you know, the the people like the, the Steve Stones and stuff like that. They're all brilliant lads who were just there playing football, and they would look after anybody once they came into that environment. So, no, it was, it was really good, really good. Do you remember that, uh, that, that, that that feeling the first time you sort of walked out the tunnel with your Irish shirt on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I remember. I'm quite lucky that I remember a lot of games, a lot of stuff that happened in games. And um, I remember being down in Cardiff and getting abused and told to go back to England and stuff like that. And when I went to get a ball from the throw-in, <laughs> no, I, I can't imagine that. No, <laughs> I'm, 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 well, I'm Irish. <laughs> Derek yeah. actually, because I, I knew Derek from, he grew up in the same area as me, you know, so he was, he was playing on, on, this, on the same game as well, so, no, it, it was, it was a bit surreal, and I said, I remember the whole game, 
I played up, up front with Noel Quinn and stuff like that, you know. So it was a, no, a dream come true, you know, and that, that's what you aim for as a kid. You've got to have goals, you've got to have targets you want to get to. And mine were all football related. They weren't sort of financial or fame or trappings and stuff like that. It was all football related. Absolutely. The most, I can only imagine, like, I played for, uh, like, the county, so I was never quite good enough to make that sort of step up. And even just at a young age, like playing for the county in cricket and football is quite proud. So like to to make that step to the senior team for your, your nation is, uh, I can only imagine. I'll always remember, um, I forget, I think it was against um, Northern Ireland, Wales played, and uh, Robbie Savage was captain for the first time. And it was been a while since, you know, Wales had played sort of, Ireland or Northern Ireland or Scotland or England or anyone and uh, he was singing the national anthem he was captain I think and he was in the national anthem he was crying and you could just you just looking at it and I remember saying to my mate like he's gonna get sent off because he is so emotional that at any day he got sent off within I think it was about five or ten minutes so it just reminded me of that then sorry um so Sorry. One of the things I wanted to ask you was, um, do you think clubs generally could um, do a bit more to support players when it comes to to mental health? One of the things that I personally sort of thought would be quite a a step in the good, a right direction is uh, having a counsellor of some sort at the clubs. So it's compulsory to be at all clubs so that... uh, where players can speak openly with someone about their mental health or if they're having any issues, but it's separate from the coaching staff. So it's not like a, a managers are monitoring the sessions to see if they're in the right frame of mind or, you know, whatever it may be. Do you think that's a realistic expectation going forward for clubs to do that? Um, yes, definitely. And, and I know that all the sort of academies have to have a welfare officer on hand and just the problem that sort of I had at one of the clubs, he was one of the coaches. He was also the welfare officer because obviously clubs are saving money and trying to get people to do two or three jobs at the same time in the smaller clubs. And my issue when I went to sort of the board was, well, what if a player in his age group has got an issue with him? Who do they go to? You know, so it's, they are there in the clubs. Um, but will, they, will the young kids go and seek sort of, to speak to strangers, you know, I, I go back to, I think it's massively important for the for the coaches, even going back to the really young babies, you know, the 12s, 13s, 14-year-olds. The, the, those coaches are the second most important people in, in those kids' lives after the parents, you know, because they're the people they look up to. They're the ones that have got their futures in their hands. You know, they hang on every word that the coaches say. So it's massively important that the coaches get to know these kids get to know what they're thinking and be able to to be a person that if they have got issues that they can come speak to them and trust them that it won't go any further and, and they will they'll have their ear and they'll, they'll give them a sympathetic sort of 10 minutes or 10 hours uh, long it takes for these kids to open up and express their feelings and um, for me it's it it's the coaches i think the coaches have to be more educated because they're with, with the lads all the time having somebody separate Sometimes they're too far away for the kids to actually go and seek them out. If they've got issues, most of the, all the young boys will keep them in house anyway. They, they won't tell anybody, you know. And you, so you have to go digging yourself to try and you know there's something not right. So you have to go digging yourself, you know. So if you've got somebody there on hand in a club, are they going to go and use them? I'm not so sure, you know. Maybe when it gets to a desperate stage, but for me that's too late then. You know, yeah. you've missed all the signs. The coaches have missed all the signs. They haven't done the job properly. You know, so I don't know the sort of FA do a lot of psychology courses and it's it's a lot of football psychology and getting to know them. But I think you can you can take a lot from that into the other aspects of dealing with the sort of young lads on a day to day basis and and seeing what motivates them and why they're not sort of behaving in certain ways and stuff like that. You know, so I would recommend sort of all sort of coaches, especially academy football, getting what well senior football get involved in that because I don't think they spend enough time with the lads you know on a one-to-one basis getting to know them getting to know the, what the families are about 
what the mates are up to on Friday nights when they're sat in watching telly preparing for a game and all the mates are out clubbing and stuff like that. You know, how are they dealing with little situations like that? Do they miss going out with the mates? And do they feel like they're wasting two years of their life because all the mates are having a great time going to a beach in the summer and stuff? You know, so it's little little things that I think coaches have got to sort of spend more time, spend more time and get to know these, these as people, you know, get to know the players. Because, as I said, when you've got people there and that you've got to go and seek them out, I'm not so sure that young lads would ever do that. I'm not so sure senior pros would do that until it gets to, to too late of a stage. Yeah, that's interesting that you uh, say. I didn't think of it as that, is that a lot of people, whether they're kids or, or grown adults, they might go there, you know, when it's there at a point where they just literally can't cope anymore. But they probably wouldn't go there unless it was mandatory to just, if they're finding it a bit stressful or they're feeling like they can't kick a bad, like, sort of bout of depression, if you like, where they're feeling down and it's like a long-term thing. So for in order for it to work, it, they you'd need to catch them, like you say, early. And yeah. the best way to do that is by getting to know them. But of course, at some of the bigger clubs, maybe they are unable to or they don't want to. I don't know, you know, it's one of those things, I guess. But I mean, it's that personal touch because every player is different. Every person is different. And they all respond to different, you know, different types of motivation and conversation. Yeah. And I, I, do, I do think it's education for the coaches. I think that we can educate the coaches along these, and we can get professionals in, you know, who are professionals in mental health and help the coaches to look out for signs and stuff like that, you know, because not, not everybody's sort of in tune to that, you know. It was something that I was sort of, always sort of took on board and took on notice. And certainly the coach that I was with, Vince Overson, he he had a lot of sort of experience as well because he had two young lads that had come up through the youth system at Bournemouth, you know. So he, and then they went away from being footballers to going into different walks of life. So he'd seen the highs and lows of it, you know, and he knew the signs to look out for with, with, with young lads and stuff. So we we were we were quite strong on that, and um, football sort of came second really to to making sure that they were okay as people. You know, and I think the education of the coaches is massive. You know, we can get a lot more sort of mental health and psychology people into clubs to help the coaches, and then they can help the players. You know, because the, the and at the end of the day, I think most of the players will listen to the coaches. They're the ones they've got their ears. You know, when the coach speaks, the lads will listen to the coaches. If it's somebody else, you know, they they think it's back to skill days where you can just switch off and just daydream and stuff like that. You know, so. It's if you can get the people that are important to them to speak to them, I think you've got a better chance of affecting them. Definitely. Oh, absolutely. Um, so uh, you've been you've spoken quite openly about some of the issues that you've experienced. Um, and I think like you and anyone who, who does speak out about some of the issues they've had deserves tremendous credit because it's you know, it's not it's not easy. It is difficult to, you know, it's difficult to admit that you're having issues or you've had issues, um, let alone then talk about it for other people to, you know, to know about the, these issues or what's been going on. Um, so, like, with that in mind, I know it is can be tricky, but uh, if could you tell us, you know, how your issues with mental health sort of began? Um, I... I probably had it from a very young age, and um, I, I remember putting something in the article that I, that I did. There I remember in an under twenty one camp, I was sat with Willie Bolden, actually another Cardiff player, and we were having a few drinks after an under twenty one game for Ireland. My mother was there, and I just said, "I said I won't be alive by the time I'm twenty three," and I always had this sort of it was like a recurring dream where I was actually when I was driving my car. That I just wanted to drive her into a wall, and just, and it was never something really that I followed up on or anything like that. And, and I probably by the time I got to 23, I forgot all about it. So that was in there from a young age. And then I think just when I finished playing, I was, I, mean, I finished on my sort of choice. I, I, I wasn't forced to re, to retire. You know, I, I'd had enough of painkillers, enough of my body packing in and stuff like that. So 
I was one of the ones that actually went out on my terms. I was happy to go when I went. So that wasn't a trigger for sort of setting me off. I just think I was in a lot. Of, I still am. I'm in constant pain. So I've got a slip disc in my back. I've constantly had headaches from the you know, the painkillers I took when I was paying. And I, and I think that that eventually just wore me down, got to, got to a stage where it, it was just day after day, some days you were struggling to sort of open your eyes and get out of bed and stuff like that. You know, so for me, I, th- I think my one was just a constant build of the pain that eventually wore me down to a point where I, I ended up depressed and I ended up not being able to go to bed for days on end and, and not wanting to get washed and have showers for weeks on end and not having no motivation to do anything, even though I was walking sort of full time, never missed a day's walk and stuff like that. You know, it was, um, and it, again, it were feelings that for me, it just crept up, crept up on me. It wasn't a one off situation where there wasn't a trigger to set me off it just seems to accumulate accumulate and you try and probably hide it as all blokes do and you don't want to tell anybody and after i actually sort of had my little episodes the relief i got from actually speaking to people and coming out and saying well this is where, where i'm at this is what i've done because people knew over the years you know close friends and stuff they knew that something wasn't right Nobody sort of knew what it was, but they knew that I changed as a person. Um, but as I said, that was over a, a period of years. And then the relief that I got from it and then sort of having to speak to people and go and have sort of counselling and, and stuff like that. Um, and I, I've, I've now sort of, since I've done the article, I've had a lot of people then opening up to me, you know, that have had very, very similar issues that they wouldn't speak to anybody. But now that they've seen I've come out, and that was the whole point of it, that if I could affect one person by sort of telling my story, that was the whole reason why I did it. And I'm, I'm fairly open with it now. I've, I've no issues with it. You know, it's out there. It's I've, I've had, in football terms, I've, this, this stigma is massive, massive. It's cost me a job just from a, a previous employer telling the new employer that, that I, after I'd signed a contract with them to start, that I'd had depression and that they, they reneged on the contract. You know, right. So, so these are the issues you've got in football. And when I went to sort of even the LMA, which is the League Managers Association, I was a member of, member of, they came back and said to me, well, that's football. I said, well, it's not football. I said, this is people's lives you, you're messing with. I said, and I had I been in a state where I was maybe six, nine months ago, and that person who I trusted at the club, that sort of CEO who I trusted with, with my story at the club, because it wasn't common knowledge at the time, I said, he just gone and broke my trust. I said, that could have sent me over the top. I said, you were just saying, well, that's football. He says, no. I said, it's bigger than that. You know, so since then, I, I've been the LMA. I won't go near them anymore. So just talk. You're meant to be there to help us. And you get somebody with a real issue, and you just want to push it under the carpet. So the stigma is massive, you know, and that's part of sort of coming out and trying to, to get it out there. That it, let's talk about it. Let's get it out there. You know, it's... I know the PFA have tried to do it a bit, but the stigma is, is still there. Oh, yeah, this definitely is why I, um, when I started the podcast, I wanted to do podcasts on mental health. And um, we did. I did one with um, Phil Brown, who's a football journalist. Um, he's another Irish guy. I've had so many Irish people on it. It's weird. Like, but, um, we did a show on grief. Um, and well, it was called Grief, Depression and Addiction um, because Phil had uh, come home one day to discover that his wife had passed away um, and then had had sort of issues go on then from that. Um, and I had had, my father died when I was 16 and I was the oldest brother, uh, so a lot of sort of responsibility fell on me and then I had some issues with drinking right up until my mid-20s really and I never dealt with it. And the the response to the to that show was unbelievable because he was we did just under an hour and a half completely both of us just opened up about everything everything we'd been through. I discussed some stuff which I'd never said out loud, yeah. and afterwards I was exhausted and I fell asleep. And then the next day, I had like about ten messages of just different people, people I hadn't spoken to before ever, people I hadn't spoken to for years, either saying, just thanks for doing it, or there was a couple who said, look, thanks for doing it, I'm really struggling, what do you think I should do? One of them I just had a chat with, and we just talked, but we still talk now. 
just back and forth how you go in and stuff and i think for me that was if, if one person had messaged me and said that really helped that's that's great for me i'd rather have one person message me and say that really helped i'm struggling and then trying to do something about it over having a vid like a show which does a million views i would take that every day of the week um, and that's the reason that I wanted to do these mental health in sport um, podcasts because I think people of like our generation, I think you're like a couple of years older than me, but like from our age and up is particularly boys, but people generally, but boys especially, like we were brought up to keep your emotions to yourself, bottle things up. And it's so bad for you. It's so bad for your mental health because eventually it just pops because you've got just stress coming in and in and in and in and in. And then eventually you're just not able to take it anymore, which is when you end up finding releases, which are even worse for you, whether it's alcohol or drugs or gambling. It can can be all sorts. And later on and... I mean, I, I still found it a bit difficult when I had people sort of coming to me after the article because I'm thinking, well, I'm not really qualified to sort of help you. I'll, I'll, I'll try and help you. And then somebody just pointed out to me a couple of weeks ago, he says, well, well who's more qualified? Somebody who's actually been there or somebody who's a counsellor who's read all the books on it but doesn't actually, hasn't had the feelings. And I thought, well, you maybe got a point. But I still didn't feel initially sort of too confident in telling them to do this and do that. Um, but I would ex- sort of go through my experiences and a lot of them were sort of shared experiences with, with both of us. But the one thing that I did try and say was the alcohol isn't good. Try and, when you get to a stage, probably an Irish team or a Welsh team, you think, oh, well, go and have a drink then. You know, and I'll make it go away by having a drink, you know. So that was the one thing that I sort of try and say to them, don't get involved with the drinks because the drinks then just make you feel worse and, and they give you that bit of sort of braveness, that bit of, courage that you need to go to the next step that's what it did with me you know so if, if you can try and stay away from that sort of avenue oh yeah definitely and i think like particularly with alcohol and i would imagine you know with drugs as well it's like when you wake up the next day from having a binge drink or having set you know a load of beers is you feel 20 million times worse because you're hung over your body feels a like crap and it's very difficult then to break that cycle because my my thing was if I was hungover, I would go and have a few more drinks because then I would feel all right again. Yeah. And it would just be, you know, round and round in circles. <clears throat> um, sorry. And the other thing which um, stuck out to me that you were just saying, which is similar but not, you know, my situation is different to yours, obviously, but like, I um I had a car car accident in 2008, uh, which resulted in me ending up with I got a messed up back and I had to have spinal surgery and stuff. Um, since 2008, so like 11 years, I've had to take morphine or oxycodone every day just to be able to get out of bed. Yeah. Now I've never exceeded the dosages and stuff like that, so. I'm not addicted to those opioid painkillers, but my body, my body is because I've had to take them every day so I can get out of bed and I've got to walk with a cane for the rest of my life. So if I um, say on a Saturday, I sleep in. So I take my tablets every, they got to be taken every 12 hours. So say like I take my tablets at like seven o'clock on a Friday evening and then on Saturday, there's no football or anything in the morning with the kids. They let me sleep in, and I wake up at say half nine ten. I have withdrawal symptoms, mild, because I haven't, I've you know it's gone past the levels, so I can only imagine what it's like for people like Phil, who I spoke to, had said you know he was using um, like opioid painkillers and he was exceeding what he was supposed to sort of take, and I can only imagine then because the withdrawal symptoms and how it like even how they make my body feel and how they make my head feel it's very difficult to 
is you can't escape pain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the, the big things when I sort of finished football was, was I wanted to stop taking painkillers. From, from the age of 20, I was having um, anti-inflammatories for breakfast. So a can of Red Bull and, and, and three anti-inflammatories. That was my, just to get out of bed, to go to training and stuff like that. So I'd had that for 16, 17 years. So by the time I got to, I just wanted to stop. I, at the end of my career, when I was back in Ireland playing, I was taking up to 11 painkillers just to get through games. You know, so I, I'd, I'd had enough of tablets and I just said, oh, I just want to stop taking tablets. And then I, I stopped the next day and that's when there was sort of migraines and headaches started. It turns out that I had a rebound migraine in my head. I had to go for brain scans and stuff to try and get to the bottom of it. Um, and basically it was just the painkillers that I've been taking. So because I'd come off them, I'd set off this this rebound migraine. Um, and the only way to get rid of it was to take tablets. <laughs> so it's you, you're back at square one. Yeah, it's like never ending, isn't it? It's like you've got to take the tablets to stop the tablets. Yeah. But... Um, so when you were struggling, what sort of what was the 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 trigger for you to seek help? Um, to seek help, couldn't do. I had young family and supportive wife and stuff like that. And even after I'd sort of had my couple of episodes. I, I still continued on walking and stuff like that and never sort of missed any days. Nobody knew, you know, so you, you've got two different sort of faces, you know, that you, you put one on for walk and then you go home and, it, and you're somebody else, you're somebody totally different. Um, and that's, I'm not so sure what to sort of... Afterwards, I'd, I never really sort of came over um, the depression after I'd had me, me couple of episodes. So I probably then just went to the doctor and said where do we go with this and I end up trying different sort of antidepressants you know some some that weren't sort of any use weren't sort of particular helping me at that time you know and um, I then ended up in a, a off season because I had no structure I had no sort of walk to go to I was just sort of lying around and stuff like that I, I got into a really bad sort of state and and then I sort of said to myself well, I need to go and see somebody you know, and it, it became a bit sort of, I had the crisis centre around in my house every day just to make sure I was, I was, I was still there. And mm. really, really strong drugs and lithium, which I had to go and have blood tests on every week and stuff like that. And to be fair, they, they sort of rebooted the system. I was, I was looking at getting sort of the, the brain, sort of, I can't remember what it's called, it's ECT or something like that, where they, they sort of give you fits. So yeah, yeah, electric, uh, electric pulses. Uh, yeah. So I'd looked at that. You know, I'd actually signed up for that and just pulled out at the last minute, um, because I, I felt myself that I was at a bad stage that I needed to sort of get rid of this these thoughts that are in my head with whatever's going on. You know. So I, I think sort of the medication that the lithium and stuff like that walked, um, but. I decided myself to come off it. I think you, I would probably still be on it now with the doctors, you know, yeah. because it worked. They were happy with that, and they would have just left you on it. Whereas I felt I got to a stage where yeah, I'm okay now. So I, I had to make the decision myself just to come off it and just stop them altogether. Again, it would go back to my sort of tablets thing where I've had the wrong lives. I just don't want tablets around me. But they're, they're part and parcel of my life now, unfortunately. You know, so I, I think it was probably the loss of structure. In, in the off season, which which really affected and, and really got got me to a bad place, and I think that was the case of, yeah, I need to go and see someone. I need to get this this sorted out, you know. Yeah, I think like obviously lithium's quite a strong, really strong antidepressant, isn't it? Um, so I just wanted to just before we finish up, the um, you mentioned there where you said um, before you had like a couple of episodes. So just for the people who perhaps haven't read the article, which I think I've read it because I think it's the one that I was sort of reading when I was getting ready for the show. Um, would you be able to just explain what those episodes involved just for the like the people who haven't read that article? Yeah, um, just over those with the tablets a couple of times. Um, just in the house, 
obviously the missus and kids were upstairs. Again, drink was involved, research was involved, the research of how many tablets I'd need of a certain type. Um, and just sat there and talked to them and my wife came down the next morning and just got me sort of slumped over the floor we're all drinking tablets all over the place, you know. So there was a couple of those, a couple of months apart. Um, but leading up to that, it was it was a daily sort of I'd walk around with the dog and I'd be looking at trees saying I can hang myself from there. That would be a good place to go. Or I was in the house looking at the banisters saying oh, I can get a rope around that. And I, I end up having a rope in the boot of the car, you know, just... And a lot of the times when I was sober, I could talk myself over. You have that 20-minute window, I, I could talk myself over. But obviously when the drink was involved, you get a bit braver. And that's why I say stay, if you can, stay away from the drink because that could be the, the little bit that pushes you over. Gives you that extra bit of courage that you don't actually need at that moment of time. But you, you feel as though you need it. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, like you say, the alcohol can give you like that bit of just extra, like you say, courage. And I think that must have been really traumatic for obviously for your wife. Um, to because obviously your part like I know for myself like when you look back it's not just you who've been through it it's you know it's your wife's been through it as well mm. um, and it's it is a, it's a lot to handle um, and that's why if whenever I speak to anyone about like mental health and stuff having some sort of support system in place is vital to to getting better to stop things you know stop you from contemplating things like suicide and taking overdose and stuff like that is you need those support systems and sometimes you know it still isn't enough for people to to not do those things yeah. um and like i said people of like our generation i know like things these days in terms of mental health generally things are getting better and people are trying to, you know, talk in more. So it, I do think we we are sort of taking steps in the right directions, but I still feel there's too many people who are not being reached in time. Yeah. And I mean, like, sadly, I know myself, like, personally, for, for people who couldn't cope and ended their lives. And, like, that's, that's too many. Yeah. Um, so I'm, like I said before, I hope that, by doing things like these podcasts and speaking to people like yourself um, and you being so open about the issues which you've had, that maybe just, if we can just sort of reach one person yeah. who's just thinks, or oh, I'd like to, I'm struggling. One of the big things that, that helped me, and I, I only sort of realised it a few weeks ago, was I have a close group of friends. So even when I was becoming a footballer, I was very aware of sort of hangers on and stuff like that. So all my friends are sort of lads I know from the age of nine, ten from Ireland, from Dublin. And when it sort of came out and became knowledge, they just dropped everything and came, came for a weekend, came, just came over and we'd have a night out or whatever. And they didn't have to say anything. They didn't know what to say, you know, because they're not qualified in it. But just their presence and knowing that they were there for you, you know. But they would never have known that if, if it hadn't come out, you know. So it was the fact that initially I came out and said, listen, lads, I'm struggling. They drop everything that's there for you. And it's people like that, you know, that you forget about when you're in the, the midst of all this. People actually care for you out there, you know. And it's, you really then, when I look back, I think, you know what, they were brilliant at the time. They didn't have to say anything. They were, they were just there for you, you know. They didn't know what to say. And you don't expect them to know what to say, you know, but just actually being there and showing you that, that support was massive. It was a massive help to me, as well as obviously the, the, the missus and the family and stuff like that. But just having your friends around, you know, which because they're, they're the ones that suffer if you, if you do go. You know, yeah, they, they, they're the ones that think, well, they could have done more at the time and all the rest of it. But they were never to know, you know. So it's, it's that initial come out, let them know that you're not in a great place and all the rest of it. And that's what people do. That's what your friends do. True friends who'll drop everything, they'll come and help you. And they'll be there for you, for you and your family and stuff. You know? So for me, I know I said it was only a few weeks ago when I was back. So you know, that's something that I totally overlooked. You're poor. Couldn't have put it better myself. I think, um, and you were right, is when sometimes, particularly I think with men, 
is you might tell your friends that you're struggling and they might not know what to say, but they'll be there. Yeah. Whether they'll sit there in silence with you. That's what they'll do, but they'll they'll be there and they'll listen to you, what you want to talk about, what you want to say. Um so yeah, and I think that's that's a positive message to to finish on. Um Alan, tell the people where they can find you on Twitter. Oh. Yeah, that's it, I think. Yeah, so uh, you can find Alan there. You can find us on Twitter at AceCast underscore Nation, Facebook.com AceCast Nation, and YouTube.com AcePodcast Nation. Um, And all the shows are available in audio on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, all those usual ones. Um, and as I said before, if anyone is struggling, my DMs are open, and I'm happy to just, you know, I'm no expert in terms of qualifications, but I'm happy to speak to people if they want to speak uh, and have a chat. Um, cheers, Alan. Thank you for joining me, mate, and thank you for being so open and honest. I do really appreciate you. No problem, man. Keep up the good work. Thank you. People for good work cheers and uh, guys thanks for watching and uh, we'll see you next time Sports Social Podcast Network